The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message. This morning, we are in Philippians 1, verse 27, following. Philippians 1, 27, and it says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I'm a hear of you. You are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now you may be seated. So if you could go back in time and visit me when I was a child, you often would have found me with my grandmother from my mother's side. He would often take care of me when my mom was working. He'd pick me up from school during my summer breaks. He would, um, uh, my mom would drop me off with him in the morning and he would watch me. And you see, my, my grandfather was an active, disciplined man. He was a man who would have a list of things to do every single day. And so one of those things, if that was to pick me up from school or whatnot, um, that was just one in the list. And so when I would be picked up by my grandfather, I would then join in the chores and the things that he had to do for the day. Well, often we would, you know, work hard and then take breaks, probably more breaks than working when I was around. But uh, we would sit down during those breaks and he would tell me things about his life, stories from when he was a child that was my age. He would tell me uh, stories from when he was growing up. He would tell me um, even of uh, the war in which he fought. See, my grandfather was a veteran of the army, and he fought in World War II. And uh, what I would later find out is he um, would tell me stories um, actually unlike anyone else in our family. For some reason, um, he would sit me down, and I was the one that he would tell not war stories like you think of war stories. They weren't stories of glory and vanity. They were stories of, honestly, often heartache and loss. They were stories of lessons learned 
in a time that was so different than our own. He would sit me down and, and he would talk to me about the things he'd experienced. Um, and though he never told me his exact motivation, I truly believe that they were given so that I could learn lessons that he prayed I'd never have to learn the hard way. He, uh, he would instill in me the things that he learned so that hopefully the next generation wouldn't have to learn those as well. Well, as he told me those things, um, I never really had a frame of reference for the, the places or the people that he talked about. And so I developed this weird love of war movies. Um, particularly because he was in World War II, I would gravitate to movies about that. And though I don't recommend it, um, especially because of the graphic nature and things, one of those movies that sticks out in my mind is Saving Private Ryan. Um, when, uh, when I was preparing for this message, I was looking, and that movie was, um, was made in 1998. So in some ways, I feel like I need to give a spoiler alert, but if you've waited 20 years to watch it, sorry, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you today. Bud walked up to me after first service, and he goes, man, I was going to watch that today, and yes, I don't have to now, but the basic premise of that movie is that you have, um, it, it, it comes in at the inception of, I'm sorry, the inception, the invasion of D-Day in Normandy, and so um, the, the story starts there. What you find is that during that battle, um, there are four brothers that are all involved in that battle at the same time, three of which are killed, and as the letters are being written to send home to the mom, what they find is that there are three brothers that have all passed away and the status of the last one is unknown. And so a directive goes out from the chief of staff and says, if there is um, this one brother left alive, send him home to his mother. So they, um, they send orders out to this, uh, this ranger um, squad. They all go out to go find this guy. Sorry about that. They all go out to find this guy. And um, what you see is you see a, um, a movie that is characterized by powerful, emotional, um, and painful lessons of life and humanity in the midst of the most horrific setting imaginable. One of the most powerful scenes in uh, the movie um, comes with a lesson at the end. What you find is that um, a mortally wounded Tom Hanks um, lies on the battlefield face to face with Private Ryan, this kid who he has been sent um, to save and send home. And as the reinforcements stream in to um, secure the position that they're at, he looks and mutters something to Private Ryan. He then grabs him, pulls him close, and he utters the two most powerful words in the whole movie Earn this. Earn it. In other words, don't just let your life go by, but live your life in a manner worthy of the sacrifice that was made for you. You know, it's, it's been the Easter season, by the way, happy three weeks after Easter. Um, and as we celebrated Easter, I have been consumed by this very same thought. Um, I've been reading through the Bible as I do, and what I found is in Ephesians 4, and then again in this passage, you see Paul admonish the church to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'd like to clarify something before I go any further, because you could easily develop a misconception, but as Pastor Chris said during communion, 
Um, and as I now reapply to this moment, we don't pay God back. We don't earn our salvation. So though that point in the movie is a good illustration of this. We do not earn salvation. We can never pay God back. Because if you think about the gift of Jesus, it is an immeasurable gift. It is a gift of worth that it far exceeds anything we could ever see, think, or imagine. And so we do not pay God back. But Paul still admonishes us at least twice in the Bible to live a life that is worthy of the gospel that he has given us. Worthy of the good news that we have. And so hopefully by the end of this message... You will see that if we are to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that we'll live lives of unity with all believers, characterized by fearlessness, even giving our lives away for the sole purpose of glorifying God Almighty. Will you pray with me then, and and let's ask God to help us uh, with such a weighty subject. Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ. In awe of you, And the fact that you were not plan B. Jesus, you were not something that God had to come up with because he made man and then they sinned. The astounding thing about you is that from the very beginning, you knew that we would sin and you were willing to come and pay a price for us. So the cross, or I'm sorry, the Bible says that it was for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And for that, we thank you this day. God, we come now asking that you would help us to study these scriptures and truly take them in. May we treat them with the reverence they deserve, and may they change our lives forevermore. Amen. So if I could, I'd, I'd like to give you a little context before we continue on, because what you see in verse 27 is you see the word only. Only what, right? Uh, So if I could, um, what we see in the book of Philippians is we see a couple things. We see Paul um, imprisoned, and yet what he says is in that, that thing has served to advance the gospel. He said he's even been done wrong by others who preach out of envy and rivalry, and yet he knows that all of this is going to turn out for good, whether that means death in his imprisonment or that means that he is freed and is allowed to continue to preach the gospel. What you see is this very famous statement that Paul says where he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so... Though he believes that he will be released, he comes to this point in verse 27. And it's almost like this idea that no matter what, here's what you need to know. And so verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Um, whether you read that in King James Version that says, let your conversation, in that case, be worthy of the gospel, whether you read it in this case where it says, let your life be worthy of the gospel, the point is this, the Greek for that is the idea that it is your whole life. It is your whole manner of being. It even goes so far as to compare it to citizenship. The Greek word originally was as citizens of a kingdom. And that is what this passage is talking about. It's not just 
you live a life where it's not just to, oh, we need to make sure we talk about Jesus every once in a while. No, this is to let your life story be completely entangled in the gospel. Matter of fact, if you go back to the original Greek, what it would do is it would flip that verse on its head and it would say, only of the gospel of Christ, let your manner, let your actions be worthy. It would emphasize the gospel of Christ over our actions even. And so as we read this, what we find is that we have a holy calling to live a life worthy. And how do we do that? How do we live a life that is worthy of the gospel? If we could never pay God back for what he's done for us, if we think about the immeasurable riches of the gift of Christ, how do we live a worthy life in the idea of the gospel? Well, the good news is Paul tells us of that and then gives us some application. And so our first point this morning is that if we are to live a life worthy of the gospel, we need to live a unified life. Unified life. Again, 27, the end of that says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, I'm sorry, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We see with one spirit we should strive. Now, with one spirit, what does that mean? Well, it means a couple things. It actually means, number one, our faith, that we are bound together with believers, that we would believe the same thing, that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day. We believe the same things. But it's not just that we believe those things. It actually has a deeper implication. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, yours, the Spirit that you follow, this Holy Spirit, He puts us not just by ourselves, but He gives us a new family. And so, not only are we citizens of a new kingdom, but we are now one family. We are striving together, not just by ourselves, not even just with our friends, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ for a common purpose. The next thing that he says is, not only is it one spirit, but we have one mind. Our thoughts should be on Christ. But even more than that, our thoughts should lead us to action. There's an old phrase that says, my actions will prove what I actually believe. And if you think about it, if you sit on a chair, you believe that chair will hold you up. So regardless of whether you've put conscious thought to it or not, your actions do show your belief system, not only with a chair, but in everyday life. If you found out that the world was ending 48 hours from this moment, what would you do? It's funny, if you ask people that question just randomly, people will go, oh, I'd quit my job and I'd go party it up. Or people say, oh, I'd, I'd quit my, or well, a lot of people say I'd quit my job. That's the funny part. Um, I'd quit my job and I'd call my relative who I haven't seen in 20 years. And, and the last time I saw him, we were at odds and I would fix that thing that is between us. A lot of people would say that if I had 48 hours left, I would find my wayward son, my wayward daughter. I'd find my parent who I haven't seen because I was angry with them, and I'd make that thing right. I'd gather my children, my mom and dad. I'd gather my relatives, those who I hold dearest together, that I might be with them in our final moment. You see, your 
beliefs influence your actions. And this morning, our lives are no different. If you reflect on the life that you've lived this past week, was it a life that was saturated by word and prayer? Was it a life where, did you tell anybody about the gospel this week? Was your life a reflection of the gospel of Christ? And so, the Bible, it admonishes us to live a life that is unified, but then it goes on, and in verse 28, it says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Not only should we live a life that is unified with the believers around us, but we should live a life that is fearless, a fearless life that is characterized by action. Have you ever sat around with a group of friends and decided that you guys were all going to go out to eat, and so for the next 35 minutes, you're like, um, where are we going to go? Well, I was thinking about Mexican. Oh, I had Mexican last week. Okay, well, I was thinking about this and that and on and on, and it takes you forever to make a decision. Or, particularly, have you ever been the one that said, I want to go here? And everybody says, ew, why would you want to go there? And you never, ever open your mouth again. Have you been me? That's me. Anyway, <laughs> so... If that has ever been you, what you find is that fear shuts you down. It stops you from acting, from making the decisions, from making suggestions, from talking to other people about the things that you want, about the things that you enjoy. Well, the Bible talks about our opponents. Who is our opponents? They're the people around us who, honestly, we fear. They're the, the people that we interact with in our everyday lives. It's funny, at, at my workplace... Um, I am, I'm number two. Um, yeah, I said it. I am the, the second guy. And so um, it's my boss and me and then another guy who honestly is smarter than me. Um, but with my position, um, it's hard for me to share the gospel, but especially in this day and age, because you don't want somebody to go, oh, well, they just want me to be saved because if not, they're going to fire me, blah, 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 on and on, right? People today even would go so far as to say, I don't want you to share your faith with me because I don't want you to tell me what to do. I have my truth. You have your truth. You keep your truth to you. I'll live my truth and all as well. But honestly, that is not what the Bible tells us to do. So do your actions reflect your faith? Are you fearless enough to go up to someone and say, look, I know that you love this life that you lead, but there is one that's so much better, and it starts with Jesus. How many times... Do we allow our fears to shut us down? Now, I can't skip over the second part of verse 28 that says that not only should we be unfrightened, but that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Now, I can't pass that over because you know the implication of that. It's funny that as Christians, we have this tendency to hide the judgment of God, the wrath of God. It's almost like God has a drug problem and we don't want anybody to know it, so we don't tell people about that part of God. We just tell people about the loving side. But what the Bible says is that there is a real destruction. What the Bible says is there is a consequence at the end. There is a hell and a judgment that awaits, and we should love people enough to tell them about Jesus. I heard a, a preacher talking about it um, a couple weeks ago, he was saying that, you know, if I invite you to my house and then I give you good directions and you don't follow them, 
And then I find that you're not at my house. And so I call you and I say, hey, Tiffany, why aren't you at my house yet? And she says, well, you know, these directions, they may not have been the best. And so I give you even better directions. And then you still don't show up. And I call you again. I even go out to the point where I meet you where you are. And I say, I'm right here. Follow me. And you don't. At what point is it no longer my fault that you didn't make it? And it becomes your fault for not following. What we find is that people may not want to hear the gospel but they want all the benefits of it. and That is not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that there is a real consequence for not following the Lord. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That is a, an unpopular verse, but it can't be skipped over. It's there. So what do we do with it? Well, if I read it again, it says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but suffer. Well, granted sounds like a positive word, and so I looked that one up too. I, I checked out the Greek, and actually as it turns out, the way, the way the Greek is written, it actually implies that this suffering is grace to you. It actually implies the way it's written that it is a gift from God. And that is actually how the early church saw it. Now, if you don't believe me, check out Acts 5.41. It says, then they left the presence of the council. Now, context of that is that um, they had just, these two guys had just been arrested for healing a man in the name of Jesus. They brought him before the council. They said, why are you preaching the name of Jesus? They told them, we can't stop. And they threatened them and said, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to put you in prison. Saw what happened to Jesus, right? The implication was that something bad was going to happen should they continue to preach in this name. But it says, when they left the council, or it says, then they left the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. When was the last time that you rejoiced because you said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, and they said, hey, I don't like you. We'll just go to church. When was the last time that you suffered dishonor for the name and was happy about it? I was listening to a sermon this week. I do that. I love sermons. Um, surprise, surprise. And um, I was listening to this, this sermon this week, and it was a Francis Chan sermon. He was talking about um, in a province in China, they now have cameras every hundred yards. They're piloting this program, and these cameras have the same analytics and the same software built into them that, honestly, my cameras in the school system, by the way, I'm bivocational and I work in the school system as well. Um, I'm a tech guy. And the cameras that they're talking about in China, I have the same type of system not the same brand, but the same type in the school system. I have these analytics that say I come on campus and, and I notice that there's somebody that's not um, of good moral character. I can put them in the system, and when the camera sees their face, it can send me an alert. And so what China's done is they have installed this system where every 100 yards there's a camera. And they assign every person a social credit score, even tie it to social media, so they know who they interact with. And when they see you enter a mosque or an underground church or whatnot, your social credit score drops. Well, at a certain point, not only does your social credit score drop, but then those, the social credit scores of those around you drop. And then at a certain point, you lose your job. And then at a certain point, they lose their job. And then at a certain point, you go to prison. And then at a certain point, if they keep associating with you, they go to prison. It's no wonder that Jesus said that in the end, brother would betray brother and son, father, and on and on. It's strange that when I 
read the Bible and all of these things that I've heard preached when I was a kid and then I've studied out in Revelation about the mark of the beast, which we can talk about later and how if you don't have that mark, you can't buy and sell and all those things. It's amazing how when I look at prophecy, it seems like it's coming to pass. And when I think about that, who knows how long it is down the road before I have to give an account for the things that I've done to a government that doesn't want me to do that. Amazing how soon it could be before I may go to prison because I shared my faith with someone and camera caught me that I didn't know it was there or someone betrayed me who I thought I knew. Would you, in your faith, let it motivate you to the point where you would even give your life for the same Let it motivate you to the point where your life would be given up even the lives, this is the hard part of your family and your children, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, if we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, we must live a unified life, fearless life. But lastly, we must lead a given life. Would you give your life for this thing called faith? Well, the nice thing is the Bible tells us that we don't have to do this thing alone, that we have others to help us. Not just God and the Holy Spirit, but we have people around us. And Paul would even go on to say this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is he saying there? He's saying, do all the things that I've just told you as I have done. Not only do you have other believers in God, but you have leaders to help you. You have people who are older than you in the faith. Now, that may not mean that they are older than you physically, but they may be older than you spiritually. And they are there to help you live this life that God has called you to. And so it says in verse 3, do nothing from, now listen to this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How hard is that in our society? In our society today, we have a tendency to look up to the people who can do it all on their own, right? Who can pull themselves up by the bootstraps who can juggle the 80-hour work week and somehow play with their kids and somehow be a good spouse and somehow do all of those things, start 17 other businesses while they're working at another job, all of this stuff. And yet how often in our culture does that mean we have to step on someone to get there? Well, the Bible would actually flip that on its head and it would say do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but also to the interests of others. See, not only are we not to fear people for their reaction to the gospel that we share, but we are to love them so much that we would be uncomfortable in their presence sharing. We're to love them so much that even if they would oppose the message that we would preach to them, we suffer that for the sake of the gospel. Let the chips fall where they may. And so the Bible says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
Then he finally points us back to the application. He points us back to the one who did it better than anyone. Back to Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That whole passage right there, many people have have misinterpreted, have misread for so long. When it says that though he was in the form of God, that did not count, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What the Greek was really talking about there, the word is the same word that you would use for plunder. It's the idea that Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to further himself. He did things out of love for people, not out of selfish ambition, and we should emulate the same. It goes on and it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Remember that Jesus was also fully God, right? And that he is the only one that could do what he did, which is give his life for us. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, we can't earn this thing that Jesus has done. It is a gift of immeasurable value. It is an act that no one on earth could give even if it was somehow possible to live a sinless life, which it's not. What we find is that Jesus was the only one, Son of God and somehow Son of Man, come to die for the sins of the world. We might have life. It ends with this. So not only does he have the name at which every knee will bow, but, and listen to this part, verse 11, and... That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. Why do we live a life of love, of compassion, of selflessness for others? Why do we live a fearless life? If we're truly to live a life that is characterized by the gospel, what's the whole point? It's the glory of God, not of ourselves. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.